Welcome to Disrupted Asia Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience, a podcast series by Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Asia. Today's double episode with Dr. Birbel Kofler and Ms. Fazana Nawaz will focus on workers' rights along global supply chains. We will first explore debates surrounding the Supply Chain Act in Germany, its importance and possible applicability to Asia with Dr. Kofler. Next, we will talk to Ms. Nawaz about the situation on the ground and the increased vulnerabilities of workers in the region due to the pandemic. The Supply Chain Act is a hotly debated topic in Germany at the moment. The proposal for this act would require German companies to protect human rights along their global supply chains and is contested between the coalition partners that form the German government. Dr. Kofler is a strong advocate of this act and will take us through some of the debates surrounding this act in Germany. She is the Federal Government Commissioner for Human Rights Policy and Humanitarian Assistance and has been a member of the German Parliament since 2004. Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia, Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. My name is Kai Dittmann and we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Berbe Kofler, Federal Government Commissioner for Human Rights Policy and Humanitarian Aid. Hello. Hello, schönen Gruß. Hello, good afternoon. Today we want to talk about the Supply Chain Act. Perhaps we start from the beginning. Why do we need a Supply Chain Act? We are in urgent need of this, not just in Germany, but worldwide. And I would encourage as many countries as possible with international production facilities to start working on a supply chain act. This also applies to many countries in Asia. It is the responsibility of countries to protect people at work from anything that could damage their health, from accidents and from exploitation. Therefore, not just protecting their human rights and also ensuring that the companies respect these rights. It is the company's responsibility to implement this and adhere to it. And of course, there is always the chance that something can go wrong. For this reason, we need a law, and you need to implement clear regulations that explains how to either file a complaint in order to improve the situation, or, if the infringements are serious, how they can take legal action. Over many years, one thing has been established, that voluntary action alone does not work. With voluntary action alone, these standards that I've just described will not be met. Currently, companies that conduct themselves in a respectable manner would have a competitive disadvantage compared to other companies launching cheaper products on the market by violating workers' rights and environmental standards. This is unfair competition. We do not want this. And for this very reason, we need a law. The law has already received some criticism, in particular when we look at the reaction of some business representatives. What is there to this criticism and where do we have to be careful not to harm the economy? And secondly, what are the potential advantages of this law for companies? Yes, there is criticism. I must admit, some of the criticism is staggering to me. They all say the same thing, that this is bureaucracy, when companies must consider how to implement perfectly legitimate and normal safety standards or wage standards. I find this rather cynical. 
What I do understand, and where people can work together to develop supporting measures, is the question of companies operating as smaller, medium-sized companies, but with many international relationships, as you often find them in Germany. These companies might not possess the exact know-how about the human rights situation for each country, which is particularly important in business relationships. A remedy can and must be found here. A solution could be setting up so-called help desks, which we are currently in the process of developing, where support can be offered via embassies, foreign trade agencies, chambers of commerce, etc., which can help to mitigate these problems. What I don't understand is why people feel that this law is haunting them, in a sense. No, my contractor around the corner doesn't need to know where his copper cables come from, but foreign companies that have a working relationship with the supplier need to know what conditions these cables were produced under. Yes, and the advantage for companies is the level playing field and the non-discriminatory conditions that allow companies to compete with the best products on the market without having to worry about the question of who is exploiting people and the environment the most. For me, this is the key factor here. The most interesting thing is that there are many companies that are in favor of a supply chain act and for clear rules. There are around 65 companies that are currently taking part in an initiative to support the supply chain act. Unfortunately, I have the impression, and let me say it quite clearly, that the BDA, the German Employers Association in Germany in particular, is only there to prevent anything that could be done to establish new rules. It would be great if they listened more to what these companies have to say. Regarding the Supply Chain Act, we keep hearing two core issues. One is the possibility for civil lawsuits and the other is company size. These seem to be the issues that receive most attention. What are your thoughts on these crucial issues? Civil litigation. The issue is the difficulty of access and the question of jurisdiction. This is something that I think just needs clarification, as well as the question of how a worker in Pakistan can get justice for his claim when the company is in a different country. How can you give access to justice, as well as knowledge about it and access thereto? And then I think we see further complications. There are some instances, even in our judicial system, where you have to apply other criteria, especially in cases of accidents. There we need to evaluate whether or not someone committed human rights violations with intent or gross negligence. And these are situations where you need access to the judicial process, where liability issues need to be evaluated and clarified. I can't comprehend those saying now that infringing upon human rights with intent is harmful to a company. I can't comprehend when that same company cannot be held liable for those actions. That is the first point. The other is the question of company size. Yes, there is a lot of disagreement about this. It is no secret that I would also like to apply the law to companies with a smaller number of employees. Usually the company size is measured by the number of employees. The debate here is regarding the question, 500 employees or less. Precisely because we often have smaller company structures in Germany with international suppliers, I would argue for applying the law to smaller companies as well. However, 
As a first step, I could live with a law that mostly applies to larger companies. Here we can learn from the process in other countries that have incorporated similar laws. We need to look at this and see if too many cases of human rights violations fall through the cracks due to this exception. And it has to be clear that the objective is to eradicate all of these cases and that everybody must face their responsibility regarding human rights issues. An overwhelming majority of Germany's imports from non-EU countries comes from Asia. Uh, what do Asian voices say about the Supply Chain Act, considering that this is one of the regions where this law should eventually make an impact? Of course. I have worked a great deal with trade unions, employee representatives and ordinary workers, and I have seen the on-site working conditions in a few Asian countries. I spent about a week in an Indian textile factory and talked with workers and lived in their homes as well. One thing is very clear. People need occupational safety, security and living wages. The current minimum wage in many regions often doesn't even cover the minimum amount required for livelihood, in particular for women. That is another area that people need to speak about. At this level, I get a lot of encouragement from people saying that they want international corporations to take a more proactive approach to implementing reasonable standards. There are also important voices at a corporate level that want this to happen, primarily because they don't want to work with five different certification systems that they currently have to work with, but with one clear set of rules and standards. There are also an increasing number of employers in Asian countries who have considered implementing such standards, in particular those who are involved in international business, as they rely on the reputation of the location for their company. For example, I have had an interesting discussion on this topic with the German-Indian Chamber of Commerce. There were also Indian employers who were defining and shaping their own standards. This is also important, not only for exports, but also for their own production in their own country, in their own market. So I have noticed a level of interest in countries, although I wish it was higher, I must admit, thinking about national action plans on business and human rights. Also, in Geneva, there is an international high-level business forum where Asian countries can discuss such action plans. I would be in favor of this type of thing here, because you need it at both ends to make countries think about their own standards in order for conditions to be improved, not just their own, but in an international context, including the many companies and employees in smaller companies that are not at all involved on the international market. And their living and working conditions are even more difficult and problematic. A supply chain act could help with this, and with some companies they would not be very happy to hear this, that trade unions get a more important role. In those countries we need help on site. This is also a requirement that we want to convey, and strengthen trade unions with the help of the supply chain law. We need on-site employee representatives, trade unions, civil societies that will advocate for a minimum standard and reasonable living conditions for employees and will handle the negotiation process. I am fully aware that this may not be to everybody's liking. It is very much the same here in Germany.
That leads directly to my next question. What role can trade unions play in exporting countries, especially here in Asia? The situation here is often difficult for trade unions. Is there an opportunity or consideration of how trade unions here could fulfill these requirements for workers to get real protection? There have been studies by the ILO, the International Labour Organization, regarding the current situation for trade unions in Asian countries. There is no way around it. We also need to look at this question more closely, of how we can support trade unions in other countries and how we can continue to move forward with interaction and cooperation. And if we have an internationally active company with employee participation in Germany that has an employee organization and is working with the support of a trade union, then we also have to see their involvement in conjunction with other countries how we can provide support here for employees in other countries. Perhaps we can finish off with a slightly more optimistic question. If you were to look into the future, say five to ten years, where a supply chain act has been successfully implemented and has backing, what would mechanisms look like that ensure good working conditions within global supply chains? It is clearly defined what we want from companies. It is clearly defined that, before things become difficult, they need to address the question, where are the risks, and that they develop clear remedial measures. This is different depending on the industry and country, respectively. We can't draw blueprints here in Berlin. This needs to be carried out in a great deal of detail. But it must be done. And I would want everybody to do this for the benefit of the people. I would want the role of trade unions to be different around the world, to ensure, especially for their members, for employees and workers, as an actor that oversees this and has a seat at the table when it comes to implementation. That trade unions are free to act and that their members, I have seen and experienced this in some countries as well, are not prosecuted but are free to carry out their work. That would be very important. We need to ensure that when laws are broken, the individuals are held accountable, as we would with any other law. If I run a red light, then everybody at home knows that this will have consequences. And it has to be the same with the Supply Chain Act. It is not enough to say that we have the law in place if we don't care about monitoring. And where the law is broken, we need to sanction and enforce penalties and punishment. Thank you very much for the great conversation. You're welcome. And thank you for taking the time talking to us. You're welcome. This was Dr. Birbel Kofler, Commissioner for Human Rights Policy and Humanitarian Assistance of Germany. As the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated the existing inequalities along global supply chains, the working situation for many workers, especially in the garment sector, has worsened. For the second part of today's episode with Fazana Nawaz, we will discuss the importance of supply chain acts such as the German one for Asian countries and the possibility of improvements in the working conditions in the region. Ms. Nawaz is an independent consultant and expert on labor rights in South and Southeast Asia. Hello, Fazana. It's great to have you with us today. Nice to be with you, Kai. Fazana, when you look at the current crisis and the situation on the ground, who suffers most under the effects of the pandemic? 
I mean, definitely the workers, right? They're the they're the least empowered part of the supply chain. In Bangladesh, um, the estimate was that about a million workers lost their jobs either permanently or temporarily, like they were furloughed or they were just let go. Um, I think in Cambodia, the number was smaller because the size of the industry is smaller, but it was still over 100,000 workers who had lost their jobs. And you see similar figures. Uh, The numbers are not perfect because there is little systemic data collection, but but the impact is very large. So it is over hundreds of thousands of workers across the region. Um, And within workers themselves, I would say that, you know, women are particularly vulnerable, right? Because um, a lot of the times women are working in the more invisible parts of the supply chains. So a lot of subcontracting factories, home-based work, informal parts of the supply chains. So whether it's, you know, doing embroidery work at home or, you know, small jobs that happen within the apparel supply chain, um, almost all of it is done by women. So women are really, really vulnerable. I mean, the whole entire workforce in the apparel supply chain is vulnerable, but women in particular, and I would say women working in the informal part of the supply chain are the most vulnerable. How did governments try to protect workers? And when you look at these measures, how did they work out? So there were uh, pronouncements from different governments. The government of Bangladesh said that they were going to give this big financial aid package to the to garment manufacturers who in turn were supposed to pay their workers, um, you know, the salary of the workers, right? Um, but what we've seen in practice is that a lot of the times these aid packages didn't really get to the workers. So I think what we're seeing also is not just kind of governments responding inadequately, but when they do respond that the implementation of whatever aid packages they were promising are not often getting to the workers on the ground. To some people, there's a debate in how far COVID-19 exposed these poor working conditions or in how far it caused it. So when we are looking at hygiene levels, access to healthcare, social security, especially among the lower rung of the supply chains across Asia, how much would you say was there before the crisis and now just uh, was brought to the attention of the world? I think what the pandemic did really is expose the vulnerabilities, right? It exposed the weaknesses in the system that already existed, but that were kind of, you know, there was a, the band-aid of the monthly paycheck and this supply chain that existed on the thinnest of margins, right? So there was just no room for error built into the whole system anywhere. So as soon as something like this happens, it, it's immediately uh, apparent that there was no accountability for, you know, the power holders in the system. There was no safety measures put in place for the most vulnerable people in the system, right? So I think it's not, the COVID-19 didn't create the problems. The problems were already there. It just exposed how how weak the system was. And it really also brings up this issue of, you know, it's working conditions, but it's also, um, you know, it, it becomes a question of human rights, right? It becomes a question of even the morality of supply chains, if we want to speak of it in those terms, that is it reasonable to exploit poor um, 
you know, labor costs in countries where the bare minimum of social protection and protection system for these workers don't exist, right? One of the approaches to tackle that are supply chain responsibility acts, uh, especially in importing countries. France uh, implemented one in 2017. In Germany, we have a discussion going on about a new supply chain responsibility act. Uh, How far would you say are these helpful? Can you point to impacts that they actually can have on the ground? I think, you know, overall, this is a very positive development, right? So mandatory human rights due diligence is something that the whole sector should be moving towards. So that's a that's a very good thing. But having said that, I think, um, you know, the devil is always in the details and the devil is always in the implementation of these legal measures. So. Um, if you take the French law, for example, that's about, I think, three years old now, maybe just over three years old. Um, last year, there was, a, or maybe at the beginning of this year, there, there were reports by civil society organizations who are working in this space on how well um, that law has worked in, in terms of ensuring better environmental or human rights work, working condition um, in the supply chains of French companies, and the results are not encouraging. Right, so so far we've seen um, that the implementation is very uneven across different companies. So there is no really standard way that this is being done. Different companies are taking, they're implementing the law at different levels. Um, there's very little enforcement from the government, from the French government. So perhaps that's you know, the root of the problem is that the law is not being implemented with or enforced with the seriousness that it deserves. Um, Another thing that I saw that was very interesting is that a lot of companies are approaching. So first of all, most companies have not put in place already a monitoring plan for implementing this law. So that's the bare minimum that you have to do. And most companies have not done that. And when companies have done it, um, it was done from the perspective, done from the very traditional CSR perspective, right? So companies are thinking about risk, whether it's financial risk, whether it's reputational risk in their supply chain. They're thinking about cost. They're thinking about you know whether they get named and shamed in in, in a in an incident somewhere, as opposed to think, taking the perspective of duty of care, right? So that fundamental mind shift, mind um, set hasn't shifted. Right. So that's something that has to be, I think, for these new laws that are coming up, uh, whether it's in Germany, whether it's at the EU level, I think the enforcement, the implementation is key. And that has to be thought about very carefully uh, because otherwise it just doesn't work. So, yeah, you were saying that the devil there is in the details. So besides uh, enforcement and uh, actual real existent liability, What would you say are other crucial details that make one of these laws work or where you would say that it is more a thing that is implemented on paper but not in reality? So I think there are two things in this regard that I want to highlight, right? One is, first of all, the scope of the law. So how much the law is taking into account things like subcontracting in the supply chains, right? Because I think... um, Based on experience, we now know that the tier one of the supply chain, so the primary contractor contracting relationship in these um, 
supplier countries is often they're fine because they're with big factories, they're with big suppliers, but it's not that's not where the supply chain ends, unfortunately, right? So there is the issue of subcontracting, there is the issue of home-based work. So whether the law is robust enough to take into account these invisible parts of the supply chains as well, and how do we make it more visible, and are companies taking the responsibility to ensure that they know about these parts of their supply chain. So they're not doing the minimum kind of box taking due diligence, but they're really making the effort to get to know their entire supply chain. So I think that's very important. So what are positive outlooks that even in um, this global crisis, even in this accelerated local and regional crisis that we can see and that we can be hopeful for? I think in terms of positive development, um, I think the conversation around social protection is very interesting. And this is something that has received a big boost because of the pandemic. Whether it's, you know, how that plays out is still, it's difficult to predict. However, um, both in terms of the pressure that a lot of these governments are facing from donor countries, so for example, from the EU or European governments, um, or in terms of their own citizenship and in terms of, you know, the conversation that trade unions are having, for example, is a lot more focused on these systemic changes and putting in place, um, you know, safety nets so that the next time a shock like this happens, that workers are better protected. So I think that's a very positive thing. And I think that um, political will is something that should not be wasted, right? So it is really up to all of us right now to make sure that this renewed interest and momentum behind social protection is actually put into practice and that systems are put into place. Um, of course, it will be challenging in a time of you know, economic crisis. But again, I think the finance side of it is less important than the political will part of it. And we're start, starting to see some positive movements in that area. Thank you, Fazana, for this slightly positive ending in a negative situation. Uh, thank you for being with us today and talking about supply chain responsibility acts and supply chains and COVID-19. Um, it was great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This was Fazana Nawaz talking on the impact of COVID-19 on Asia's labor markets. Earlier, you heard from Dr. Berbel Kofler, Commissioner for Human Rights Policy and Humanitarian Assistance of Germany. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupted Asia, Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. This podcast was brought to you by Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Asia, interview by Kai Dittmann, research by Aryaman Batnagar, directed by Mirko Gunter and produced by Andovar. Please make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it, And don't forget to visit our website, fes-asia.org, for regular updates on freedom, justice, and solidarity in Asia. <laughs>